Bienvenidos. This is a podcast that explores Latinx media and culture in its many forms. I am Dr. Rojo Robles. And I am Dr. Rebecca Elsalois. And we are Latinx and Latin American Studies professors at Baruch College in New York City. In this podcast, we will analyze Latinx film, television, literature, art, and cultures. We will consider how these works are perceived, analyze them, and investigate the real-world reflections and implication of that work on Latinx cultures in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Latinx Visions. Identity Repair Poem Negro, negrito lindo, pretty, negrito chulo, smooth, querido negro, beloved, maldito negro, damn, Sugarcane, yeah, we got back like sun and sweat, crack of the whip, greed and pain, a trip across a cold, salty ocean. Afro-Latino, Pedro Martinez, Jerry Curls, Mongo Santa Maria, drums, 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 rum, rum, rum. Latino, black, Hispanic, check here. Latino, white, Hispanic, check here. I mean, soy negro, not African-American, but I'm black, ¿verdad? Welcome back, everyone, to our season on Afro-Latinidad. That was a poem by Roberto Carlos Garcia entitled... Identity Repair Poem. Thanks for sharing that with us to get us started. I think it's a, a great way to get us into talking about literature. And I feel like it's a perfect bridge to talk about three collections that we're going to be discussing today. Yeah, today we're going to be focusing on uh, Afro-Latinidad and poetry, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we're, we're only bringing you one episode a month, but we're covering a whole bunch within that episode. So there's plenty, plenty for everyone here. <laughs> in fact, in this episode, we will introduce you to, as uh, Rojo mentioned, the three poetry collections. And the collections we're addressing in this episode include Love is Hard Work, Memorias de Loisaida by Miguel Algarín, Black Maybe by Roberto Carlos Garcia, and We Are Owed by Ariana Brown. In the main segment of our episode today, we will share a little bit of the history of the New Rican Poets Café and discuss Algarín's role as one of, the, of, of its founding poets. Then we will analyze Brown's inclusion of Gaspar Yanga as a subject of some of her poems. After that, we'll move on to discuss the Spanish casta system, as seen by Garcia, and systemic anti-blackness, along with U.S. imperialism, in regards to how blackness is perceived. This will tie directly into our final topic, which is about confronting anti-blackness, and how these poets do so with their words. As usual, we will wrap up the episode with a few recommendations of literary works, both poetry and prose, by other Afro-Latinx authors, so let's get into it. All right, so we'll get started with a little background on each of these collections. First up is Love is Hard Work, Memorias de Loisaida by Miguel Algarín. Now, Love is Hard Work is a poetry collection that was published in 1997. It's both a personal memoir and a portrait of life in New York's Lower East Side, or Loisaida. I love that. I <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's just something so beautifully natural about that yeah. name of it. Yeah, it became like a, a, a Spanish word. Yeah, yeah. yeah a exactly. Puerto Rican Spanish word, Loisaida. <laughs> the collection paints a picture of the sights, sounds, and general life of this neighborhood, but through the lens of Algarín's life experiences. 
So we'll talk a bit more about Algarin's role with the New Yorican Poets Cafe in the next section, but we can see in his poetry a celebration of many of Algarin's friends from that community. Love is Hard Work covers a wide range of topics from private loves to public collaboration. Through his poetry, Algarin offers readers a critical look at himself and his life. These collections blends the beautiful with the grotesque, the comic with the tragic, and the poems within it are at the same time honest, passionate, and graceful. Now, the book is divided into four sections. The first one is New Yorican Angels, and it tells the stories of human interactions with the incorporeal world. Algarin tells readers that angels are sometimes people, objects, or simply live wire ideas. The connection with this world of direct electricity can be controlled in part by letting go of the self in order to let the typhoon through, tidying up internal space afterwards. We will dedicate some time to analyze uh, a couple of, of, of the poems of, from this section from New York and Angels. Uh, the second section is Shared Love. Subtitled Bioethics in an Age of Plagues is just a deeply intimate look at HIV AIDS from the perspective of the poet himself. He tells us in his proem or prose poem at the start of this section that there are plagues carried by the air. In those cases, we quarantine the bearer. There are, on the other hand, plagues that can be controlled if we use personal restraint and care in how we meet to share love with each other. Uh, you know, that that line in particular really resonates in 2022 still, right? I know yeah. obviously he's talking about HIV and AIDS in particular uh, in this segment, but... But there's a lot that we can uh, interpolate with our current uh, health crisis with COVID-19, definitely. Absolutely. The third section, Augustin Loisaida, reads almost like a diary of sorts, marking each day of the month from the 9th through the 31st with a poem. When read together, they tell a story of the poet's reflection on the past and the dissolution of relationships. As Algarin reflects, Loisaida is our home, a place to mourn the loss of the major players on the streets of Loisaida, too often fallen to the plagues of violence and illness. And finally, New York and Kaddish is a celebration of many of the life lost in his time, from his father to Albin Ailey to the iconic playwright and poet Miguel Piñero, and many more of his friends and love that are no longer with him. The second collection we're looking at is Black Maybe by Roberto Carlos Garcia. Now, Black Maybe is the poet's second published collection of poetry, and it was released in 2018. His first was entitled Melancholia, published in 2016, and his most recent is Elegies, released in 2020. Garcia is a native New Yorker and the founder of the cooperative press Get Fresh Books, LLC. He holds an MFA in poetry and poetry in translation. He's a self-proclaimed angry black man. Black maybe gives readers a new way in which to consider U.S. American race work in today's world. Through his poetry, Garcia dismantles the idea of a monolithic blackness and openly confronts racism of all kinds, ideological, institutional, interpersonal, internalized, and intersectional. Garcia offers a commentary on the complexities of Afro-Latinx identity through his poetry, and he invites readers into spaces in which they have to sh the chance to learn and question who they are, especially outside of a prescribed historical whiteness and of U.S. American notions of blackness. In his closing essay, Black Maybe, Garcia tells his white readers, if you're white, take what you've learned from this essay and put your privilege to work. 
And he calls for readers like him, particularly those who identify as Black Dominican and U.S. American, to start conversations with family. He asks, how does the Afro-Latino Caribbean experience in America mirror the African-American experience for you? We need to talk about this. In time, these conversations can help all Dominicans to be more like our Haitian brothers and sisters, proud to walk black and beautiful in the sun. That's a beautiful sentence. It really is. I, I love... I love being able to include their words, not just in terms of reading the poetry, but weaving it into our discussion as well. Yeah. So the final collection we will be looking at in this episode is We Are Old, the debut poetry collection by Ariana Brown, published in 2021. Brown is a black Mexican-American poet with 13 years experience writing, performing, and teaching poetry. Many of the poems in this collection are about the author's childhood in Texas and a trip to Mexico as an adult. This collection explores black relationality in Mexican and Mexican-American spaces and interrogates accepted origin stories of Mexican identity by asking readers to reject U.S., Chicano, and Mexican nationalism and to confront anti-black erasure and empire building. Brown places her experiences of blackness in conversation with the histories of formerly enslaved Africans in both Texas and Mexico. She also includes historical figures, friends, and family members in many of the poems. These figures serve as protective and guiding forces, in particular, Gaspar Yanga, a maroon that founded the first black liberated town of the Americas. Brown also includes historical information between many of her poems. According to the notes at the end of her book, this information comes from lecture notes, primarily, uh, that she took during her classes at the University of Texas in Austin. All right, so we would like to, in order to talk about Miguel Alvarín, we would like to, to also like give you an overview of the Nurican Poets Café. To, so today we, uh, we would like to share with you a brief history of the café. Founded nearly 50 years ago in 1973, the New Poets Café began as a salon or a gathering of like-minded people in Miguel Algarín's East Village apartment, Una Tertulia. Mm. He, along with other poets, musicians, and playwrights of color, gathered there to share their work, which was often not accepted by the mainstream. Algarín's apartment had a bohemian workshop atmosphere in which the poets would write, perform early versions of their poems for each other, drink, smoke, hook up, and engage in conversation about their poetic vision. I have to say, I, I actually knew the word tertulia before I learned salon. Like, I didn't know what the English translation was. So I, I knew the concept, but yeah. that was one of those words I learned in Spanish first. Yeah, in Puerto Rico, we will say tertulia, right? Mm -hmm. like, that's the same. Yeah, but the salon or tertulia is the, is the same. Like uh, It's the concept. Yeah, the concept is uh, like gathering to read, to talk about literature, to talk about poetry, to also to hang out. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot about that the New Yorkian origin that is about like Puerto Rico poets getting together and hanging out together uh, and, and thinking about uh, futures together. By 1975, performance poetry and that scene had become a vital part of urban Boricua, Latino, and African-American culture, and the founders of the New Yorican Poets Cafe rented space on East 6th Street to house events. And by 1981, the popularity of these salons had grown to the point where the cafe decided to purchase a former tenement building on East 3rd Street in Manhattan and move its events and programs there from the original space. Over the last several decades, the New Yorkian Poets Café has served as a home for groundbreaking works of poetry, music, theater, and visual arts. 
gives voice to rising poets, actors, filmmakers, and musicians of diverse cultural backgrounds. It's well known for encouraging the empowerment of minority and underprivileged artists through poetry, jazz, theater, hip-hop, spoken word, and from the 1990s on slam poetry, a competitive sports-like performance format in which the audience select their favorite poet performers of the night based on the content of the poem, but also on the delivery and the polished gestures that accompany it. This move towards slam poetry generated criticism, especially during the 1990s, because some poets and audience members thought that it permitted the commodification and commercialization of their art forms, thus affecting the community and their craftsmanship. But others saw that, you know, at the time, a new iteration uh, was needed in order to survive the larger gentrification of the area. Beyond these internal debates, the New Yorker Poets Cafe continues to be one of the most respected art organizations in the U.S. and their programming ranges from open mic nights, Latin jazz and hip-hop concerts, theater performances, art exhibits, and more. They even offer educational programs that provide literacy and, po and public speaking opportunity to students. I, you know, it's, it's amazing because I think that it is known pretty widely for you know the the slam poetry and all of that but i think a lot of this other stuff that that the cafe has done over the years might not be as well known to the mainstream and and i think it's really important to reiterate the number of things they do and the ways in which they engage their community i mean the cafe itself is considered a haven for black and latinx writers and performances yeah so we'll be sure to link their website in the show notes so you can learn more or maybe even attend one of their events uh, i looked at their calendar and they they're still doing online events but they're also doing in-person and hybrid events at this time so yeah they have they have been like really active during the pandemic mostly on an online format but they have keep at it yeah and that has been very important and especially during lockdown that was like a, a also that the new york being alive even though it was uh, online was like fantastic yeah, yeah yep. maintaining that that community sentiment mm -hmm. Algarin one of the poets uh, for today was along with Miguel Piñero Bimbo Rivas and Loki Cienfuegos a founder of the cafe along with other other poets yeah and cultural promoters he played an important role in spreading New Yorican literature throughout the city and beyond as a poet performer theoretician and cultural promoter yeah he was also a professor <laughs> ah definitely yeah uh, he, he was a specialist of uh shakespeare yeah his courses on shakespeare's were always packed and he was like celebrated as a as a as a scholar of of, of shakespeare so that's that, that is take I us yeah, to part. another that's level awesome. yeah <laughs> uh algarin along with pinero combined the first new yorican poetry anthology entitled new yorican poetry an anthology of puerto rican words and feelings which was published in 1975 and the follow-up, Aloud, Voices from the New Yorican Poets Cafe, edited with Bob Holman and published in 1994. So let's look at some visions of New Yorican identity and spirituality in Algarin's work. In his 1970s conception of New Yorican poetics, Algarin talks about the poet as a trovador that tells the tales of the street while the people listen. They cry, they laugh, they dance as the troubadour opens up and tunes his voice and moves his speech and rhythm to the high tension of bomba. Mm -hmm. For Algarin, the poet should channel the rebellious call and response of bomba, the Afro-descendant, unruly music genre in which dancers, drummers, and singers communicate with each other, improvising over collective body, drum, and vocal statements. 
In the 1990s, influenced by his partnership with Holman, Algarin conceptualized New Yorican poetry as a tool to engage with the masses via short films, television, and slam to dissolve the social, cultural, and political boundaries that generalize the human experience and make it meaningless, in his words. For him, performance poetry was still a living art that illuminated a multi-ethnic dialogue. We can see here also how the New Yorican aesthetic, as defined by him, transcended the particular experiences of Boricuas in New York and has become, not without debates, a poetics for and by people of color. An example of this is his poem, Mayan New Yorican Angel, in which he talks about culinary and linguistic transculturation. City life is a process that permits combining in harmony Japanese, Central American Mayan, and Puerto Rican cultures and cuisines. In Love is Hard Work, Memorias de Loisaida, the New Yorican identity became an otherworldly physiological and spiritual experience during the HIV-AIDS crisis. In New Yorican Angel, it is a physical and mental force that erotically penetrates the poet and allows the person to embrace deep sensations, mental trips, and queer desire. Reflecting on the effects of HIV in the Eurekan Angel of Implosion, the symbiosis of the poet and his city is depicted. As the news of the virus enters the mind, the city mirrors a physical and symbolic collapse. The floors and walls crumble. The news crumbles internal space. He says, the body of the poet and the urban body enter in a difficult dialogue becoming one. Here, the body building fluctuates between despair and hope. Yeah, and in other poems of this section of the book, to be New Yorican is to achieve a state of dignity that allows you to empty your mind of vanity, especially when confronting the death of friends, lovers, or the proximity to it within one's own body. Perhaps the poem that summarizes his stance of the 90s regarding New Yorican states of being is New Yorican Angel Voice, in which there is a commitment to love all the way, to value the journey of life, to love the individual, and collective transnational body in all of its conditions, to honor it, to care for it, to mourn it, to remember it in joy, solidarity, and pleasure. So moving on, let's talk about Ariana Brown and Janga, Gaspar Janga. Okay. Right, the second poet of our episode. Ariana Brown starts her section on Gaspar Yanga by quoting Afro-Canadian poet, essayist, and documentarian Dion Brandt, who says, Black experience in any modern city or town in the Americas is a haunting. One enters a room and history follows. One enters a room and history proceeds. History is already seated in the chair in the empty room when one arrives. Where one stands in a society seems always related to this experience. For Brown, studying abroad in Mexico, her ancestral homeland seems precisely haunting as she needs to interact with being fetishized as a black woman and experiences anti-blackness in the form of being separated or erased from the historical constructions of Mexicanidad. In the poem Field Notes, for instance, Brown says, My classmate says aloud, I didn't even know Afro-Mexicanos existed. Our professor not supported. <laughs> or... In another line, the vendor at the pyramids wants to know if I am from Costa Rica. No, I am your black neighbor. Run. <laughs> Mexicanidad, just like most of the national identities in Latin America, has been defined as a mestizaje or mixed raceness, mixed mm -hmm. cultureness, yeah, in which the African heritage and blackness is diluted. 
Through these discourses, La Hispanidad is centered and indigeneity is seen as a fixed folk culture of the past. Facing this, Brown decides to center instead the figure of Gaspar Janga, a maroon or self-emancipated African. The poet sees Janga as the true origin of her Afro-Mexican-American identity. She doesn't identify with brownness, but with blackness. Brown cites the words of Afro-Latino animator and author David Heredia, telling us how Gaspar Yanga was known as the first liberator of the Americas and how he led one of the most successful slave rebellions in the hemisphere. That around 1570, he led a slave revolt and escaped with a group of followers into the mountainous terrain surrounding Veracruz. There, Yanga and his people formed a settlement, which grew to some 550 people, and he eluded capture for nearly 30 years. By 1630, the town of San Lorenzo de los Negros was born, and the first free African settlement in the Americas. In 1932, the town was renamed Yanga. The experiences of maroon, self-emancipated Africans who flew the colonial status quo, cimarrones en español, mm -hmm. and those who regenerated their culture in new geographies resonated with the poet as an Afro-descendant hunted by history. The poem ends with Brown promising to look for Yanga everywhere. And I quote, I learned from Yanga during my final week in Mexico, alone, finally with my kin, can't help but weep. It is through the historical figure of Gaspar Yanga that the poet finds a cultural and racial connection within a country that erases her lineage. The poems in this section of We Are Owed, a, a collection that argues for reparations for black people, humanizes and enters in conversation with Yanga, inserting him into personal memories. Were you a patriarch? Who was your mother? Who loved you and raised you? What did you call yourself? Did you have children, a wife, a husband, a gender? These are just some of the questions that Brown asks Yanga. There is a poem in which Brown, as a six-year-old, writes a letter asking Yanga for a photograph to see what he looks like. <laughs> the poet wants to recover Yanga's body, his gestures, and ultimately his humanity. Brown creates Yanga's features by combining them with those of El Abuelo, Popo. I think of Janga as having a gap between his teeth. Not sure why, just seems like it makes sense. That crack in a bell that makes the sun sweeter. And when I speak about songs, I'm always speaking about freedom, she says. In two other poems, Yanga explains and Yanga builds me a panga. Yanga is building a boat that, figuratively speaking anyway, will bring Brown, as a maroon, far from the anti-blackness she experiences and will allow her to trace her true origin in Mexico while building a black power future. Although she understands Yanga as a kindred spirit of sorts, the poet is also critical about the historical figure and questions him about his alliances with the Spanish colonial government and how he compromises the lives and liberty of other maroons, other cimarrones. Uh, Do you really agree to turning runaways in exchange for freedom, your people's freedoms? Brown, hence, complicated the history of maroons in the Americas by presenting how they could not create complete black freedom. To survive and retain territories, most of the maroon enclaves needed to partner with the colonial authorities in exchange for a limited autonomy. However, Brown finishes on a hopeful note. The last poem of this section ends with the poet stating that black people in the future are writing to them, bringing them into what she calls the forever universe where we are always free. 
So moving on, we're going to start talking about the third collection mm -hmm. by Roberto Carlos Garcia. And specifically, we're going to be talking about the Spanish casta system and, of course, blackness and U.S. US imperialism. As all we said intersects. The, all intersect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so just like Ariana Brown, Roberto Carlos Garcia also unpacks the complexity of blackness when you are an Afro-Latinx person. His book, Black Maybe, an Afro-lyric, intends to, in his words, recognize the differences between African-American culture, Afro-Latino culture, and being black in between. Garcia says that growing up, he felt that like living in a Twilight Zone episode. And he says, I'm black in a country, the U.S., right. that by all indication hates black people. I am, and I am descended from people that are black but pretend not to be black, Dominicans. Mm -hmm. As he became an adult, he recognizes that there was some serious history behind this unblackness. He calls that unblackness. Right. And history starts at home, he says. And for Garcia, home implies what happens intimately within the family, what happens in the neighborhood he grew up in, Washington Heights in this case, in a New Jersey suburban neighborhood he moved to, but also in the Dominican Republic at large. Now, this book offers many entry points to think about black geographies, which is a Another another possibility of uh, another reading possibility. Yes. Researching about racial construction in DR, Garcia says that anti-blackness precedes the regime of dictator Rafael Trujillo and pinpoints the Spanish casta ideology. So we're going to read a little segment of, of Garcia's words to really reiterate this idea. Dominican anti-blackness goes back even further than Trujillo's 30-year reign of terror. During the colonial era, the Spaniards set up a naming system called Las Castas. The word casta means caste. Under Las Castas, Spaniards stood at the top of the social hierarchy, possessing all manner of wealth, power, and influence. As Spaniards copulated with the indigenous and African slave population by rape and sometimes rarely by marriage, their children were labeled and placed at a certain level within the hierarchy. For example, the child of an African and a Spaniard will be called a mulato. The child of an African and a mulato will be called a sambo. The child of a Spaniard and an indigenous person was called a mestizo and on and on. It is important to know that these are zoological terms applicable to animals. In order to move up in the social hierarchy, everyone needed to be something else. The African or Negro wanted to pass as mulato. The mulato wanted to pass as Spaniards or Indio. And nobody wanted to be Negro, Black. Under Las Castas, Africans were always at the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah, this Spanish system of categorization that also became a whole genre of paintings is so central to Dominican and Latin American constructions of race to this day that Garcia used a casta painting as the cover of his poetry collection. He also wrote a poem entitled Casta that reproduces the racial logic of the system, but he added words that recontextualized the historical circumstances and goals of the whole system of classification, undoing its supposed objective formation. Conquistador Español Peninsular Europeo, colonized Amerindian Indio Americano, stolen slave Negro Africano, Español Colony Criollo Colonial, Indio Español Mestizo Rape, Español Mestizo Castizo Pass, Español Mafa Colony Slavery, Africano Español Mulato Rape, 
español, mulato, morisco, paz. And it goes on. Yeah. As we can see, Garcia uncovers the sexual violence against indigenous and African people during Spanish colonial times, arguing that this genetic mix is evidence of the destruction brought by colonization and the everyday attack on those deemed the other of Spanish whiteness. Garcia presents how these are not innocent interrelationships between people in love or in marriage, but actual rape. He also contextualizes blackness in all its varieties by indicating the role of slavery as a system of dehumanization and subjection. In the poem Casta, he also puts a spotlight on how mulato and mestizos are categories that produce ambiguity and misunderstanding. He says, Tente en el aire, mulato, no te entiendo. No te entiendo, indio, torna atrás. In other words, mixed-race people are in a zone of unbelonging. The idea of tornar atrás or going backwards is at the center of colorism and the mestizaje ideology that we discussed with Brown. The idea of the casta painting and ideology was to mejorar la raza or to establish a trend towards whiteness. If you are mixed, you should aim to be white. That is what the system proposes. Literally, the system says, if you get darker, you're doing things backwards. You are engaging in de-evolution. Cleverly, Garcia also includes contemporary racial terms in the Dominican Republic and U.S. that, just like the colonial casta system, are establishing a hierarchy based on how close or far you are from whiteness. An example of how Garcia uses this can be seen on page 24 of his book. Trigueño, trigueñito, cimarrón. Rojizo, moreno, morenito, quemao, quemaito, prieto, indio, indiecito, creol, claro, clarito, blanco, oscuro, oscurito, negro, fair, light skin, high yellow, red bone, olive, mid-tone, brown, dark brown, black. A phrase that he repeats throughout the poem is, and it goes on, signifying the continuum of the casta system created centuries ago, but its effects are still applicable to the present and beyond. One thing he establishes in the collection is how the U.S. notions of blackness are many times influenced by an African-American exceptionalism that rejects blackness if this emerges from a Caribbean or Latin American perspective. This could be considered another example of how United States imperialism is embedded in conceptions of race, even those that come from marginalized communities. Mestizaje and mulates are phenomena present in the U.S., however, there seems to be a conception of purity in blackness that clashes with the genetic mix present beyond U.S. borders. An example of this is the text, The Day a Poet I Looked Up To Clown Me. He shook my hand so violently, I thought he shake me off the map. I just finished saying my last name when he smiled real big and notched me aside. He went to a group of black students and introduced himself. I stared at my outstretched hand darker than a paper bag and lighter than mulch. Oh, you're not black black. And I am cast off, aboard my great-great-grandpappy's middle passage, his labor to blue sky, salt sea air of Caribbean cane fields, same all-inclusive package as our cousins in Virginia, but in this day we are changed. I am the space left in the wake of the juke move he performs to negate me, my blackness and me, shaking hands with the air. 
as we see uh, Garcia's as, oh, you're not black, black, by a poet he admired. Mm -hmm. This causes him to reflect on how both of their ancestors arrived in the Americas the same way, but the fact that he he's ended up in the Caribbean somehow negated his blackness. The poem challenges this mentality, just like the poem we read at the beginning of this episode. Yeah, I, I mean, and so here we're seeing it across, you know, especially most strongly in these last two poets in their collections, but just that that challenging of anti-blackness, the confronting anti-blackness. But what does this mean? You know, what does it mean to confront anti-blackness? Well, it's recognizing that anti-black racism in the U.S. is far-reaching and deeply insidious. I mean, I think that's that's the, the first step, especially in how it informs institutions, policies, and daily lives. It means understanding and dismantling anti-black racism. And that, that word dismantling is key here, right? It's, it, you can understand it all day long, but <laughs> until there's action taken to dismantle it, uh, it won't change. It means better examining the past, making an effort to understand the present, and working to create a better future. For non-blacks, it means checking our biases and privileges and speaking up when others engage in anti-black behaviors. For this poet, and I identify with this stand as a Boricua critic, writer, and poet of African and Taino descent, it is writing and bringing to the forefront poetry that challenges anti-black sentiments, including those that come from within our own communities and families. It is acknowledging and embracing our own blackness without negating other heritage and rejecting any claims that erase our black identities or the realities of the colorist hierarchies still active in our societies and consciousness. It is providing a safe space for poets and artists to express their love and pride for the blackness and Afro-Latinx identity. It is also to care for our bodies and health. Yeah, I honestly, confronting anti-blackness is really where these three poets and their poetry collections come together for me. You know, for Algarin, his confrontation of anti-blackness came with the creation of the New Rican Poets Cafe, a place that, as we mentioned, is a haven for black and Latinx writers and performers. It's a place that was created out of the need to establish a space where black and Latinx poets could share their work with one another when it wasn't accepted elsewhere. For Algarin to confront anti-blackness is to address with honesty and love the concerns of the community regarding sexual health, access to health care, and spaces to live dignified lives and periods of sickness. To mourn with respect and compassion is essential in his conception. And I really think there's a bit of overlap with what we talked about last month with Pose and I like it like that, but especially with Pose and the health and yeah. well-being of the the families that are created that live in these houses. Yeah, definitely. Pose is arguing as a, as a show is arguing precisely to for uh, for that same level of dignity. Yeah. In sickness and in health, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and to have those support systems in place, whether it be the New York and Poets Cafe, whether it be the ballroom scene mm. and the the families that created are created from that, or whatever it may be, but that community the comunidad is is really what's most important in the case of Garcia, Roberto Carlos Garcia, much of this manifested in his poetry through questions asked of those around him and the questions asked of him mm -hmm. in Mama Ana's flat nose he asked Mama if we're a part Spanish gypsy part Taino Indian why is your nose flat like Celia Cruz <laughs> <laughs> and in the angry black man his question comes in the form of a knock knock joke knock knock 
Who's there? Angry black man. Angry black man who? Me. And as we saw in identity repair poem at the beginning of the episode, the question is a straightforward one. I mean, soy negro, not African-American, but I'm black, ¿verdad? Yeah, asking those those questions or having questions asked of him uh, in all of those cases, that's his way of challenging that anti-blackness. Yeah, there's one poem that I, I really like him, which the, the grandmother, yeah, la abuela Ana, asked him like, but a poem shouldn't be about like roses and violets and he's and, and and we know that for him it's not about roses and violets but actually to to examine yeah anti-blackness and to examine his afro-latino identity i think uh, a modern day equivalent of that would be when we say that you know aren't things all like sunshine and rainbows right <laughs> that's sort of the the equivalent we have now but i would suggest that it's in his essay at the end of the book, you know, an essay with the same title as the book, Black Maybe, where he not only confronts anti-blackness himself, but he calls on the reader to do the same. Here he digs into his family's history with blackness, specifically his grandmother's experiences growing up during the Trujillo regime. He explores the casta system that we just discussed, and he goes back to early Haitian-Dominican relations as well. So this look into his own history and the history of his ancestors is one way in which Garcia confronts his anti-blackness. Yeah, and in the case of Garcia, his ancestor also, he includes Haitian as part of his ancestors. And that is like a very important uh, gesture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. D Politically speaking, racially speaking, and in other ways as well. Poetically speaking as well. And I think that's something I hear from a lot of students a lot of times uh, about like the 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 relationship between Dominicans and Haitians and why, you know, the origins of those conflicts and, and how it's sort of manifested in their own families today. That sort of mentality carries on. In Garcia's words, and I'm going to quote him, perhaps newly arrived Dominicans didn't yet understand that America trusts black or white upon you quickly. You have to decide, you have to know who and what you are. Most of the Dominicans I know have a discernible African lineage, but too many are quick to claim Latin American status as opposed to Afro-Caribbean identity. We need to re-examine our historical cultural self. I completely agree that race is a construct, but identity is a necessity. Yeah, I, that's, that's another thing that I, I hear all over, especially when we talk about Afro-Latinx folks in film and television their visual representation in in these mediums is that they are often you know sort of pigeonholed into one or the other it's like you're black you're latino but many of these people are both and want to embrace both and and be able to express that in the roles they take but there's outside factors that play a role in this as well including racism and nativism in in the u.s Yeah, and we can see in this quote also like the, the idea that Latinidad has been constructed with the same uh, mestizaje ideology mm -hmm. that erases blackness, right? And that's why he talks about like this idea of people claiming Latin American status, but not Afro-Caribbean heritage or identities. Yeah, and for him, it's important to claim both because that's who he is. Now, with Brown, many of her poems address her own experiences with anti-blackness, both in the U.S. and Mexico. In her poem, Borderland Sweet Names, she explains what it means for her to be both brown and black. And I'd love to, to read the whole thing, but it is, it is a bit long. So there's just a few excerpts from it that, that really stood out to me. She says, brown is the name of a slave owner. Brown is a color. 
Brown is the color of some of my family, not all. Black is also my color. Black is also my allegiance. I am black, but I am not dark-skinned. Brown does not mean dark skin. Black power is my allegiance. Black is not my name, but it is my condition. I am proud to be black. Black power is fundamental. Alam Palaez Lopez, in his foreword to the collection, refers to Brown's poems as portals to the intimate life of black people who committed to survive in nations that were aiming to do the opposite. And by opening these portals, Brown is challenging the reader to confront anti-blackness. Yeah, poetry can serve as a place and a space of safety, a way of inviting others in. But it can also be a way of confronting history, of challenging readers, and of initiating change. Each of the poets that we looked at in this episode do all of this and more with their poetry. So as always, we want to end the episode lecturing some recommendation. And uh, I want to start with the poetry collection, The Essential Hits of Shori Bombom. This is a collection of poems about a percussionist in 1970s El Barrio or Harlem. Yeah. And the music circles in the New York music circles from the current poet laureate of Nueva York, el poeta laureado de Nueva York, el boricua Willy Perdomo. With vitality and salsa dynamism, the book imagines the life of a percussionist rebuilding the landscape of his apprenticeship, love, diaspora, and death. The character Chori Bombon is based on Perdomo's uncle who played with Charlie Palmieri. In the book, he recalls his live studio recordings with Palmieri and his descarga or drum bass band. It is a book that centers Afro-Nurican lives, sounds, and music production. That sounds fascinating and definitely something I think my husband would be very interested in as a percussionist himself, you know. <laughs> it's a fantastic book. It's a fantastic book. And, he, and in 2014, he was a, a National Book Award finalist. I, I just the way that poetry and music just flow into one another and, and, and create, you know, you, you have both of these created together. I, I almost think you can't separate them. And I think that's what the New York and Poets Cafe did too. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And it's also like this idea, just like we were looking at different different notions of uh, New York identity in the case of uh, Willy Perdomo, uh, he's establishing a New York identity that is based on salsa, the aesthetics, the lyrics, the sounds, the and definitely the Afro heritage within the music. Mm-hmm. So my first recommendation is called Island of Dreams, and it's by Jasmine Mendez. Now, Island of Dreams blends poems and short stories in order to provide an insight into the challenges, joys, hopes, fears, and disappointments she and her family faced being Dominican in the U.S. It explores a number of things, including the love-hate relationship she had with her hair and her mother, and the memorable but sometimes unpleasant family vacation she shared with her extended family. The poems and stories in this collection are about family, food, love, culture, self-discovery, assimilation, and the so-called American dream. They're about a young girl who respects the richness and abundance of her cultural history, but who struggles to form her own identity because her Dominican values conflict with her American self, and all she wants to do is find a place to call home. 
The second recommendation I would like to give today is The Black Maria by Eritrean, African-American, Puerto Rican poet Aracelis Guirmay. The book takes its name from the moon's dark plains, misidentified as seas by early astronomers. It is thus about black migration through different oceans. As a collection, The Black Maria investigates African diasporic histories, the consequences of racism within American and European culture, and the question of human identity and race. Germay, a mentor figure to Ariana Brown, also uses theoretical techniques in her poetry, adding a pedagogical or documentarian aspect to her poetry. And the last recommendation that we'll share today is uh, it's a memoir. Uh, it's called, many of you may be familiar with it, uh, it's called Down These Mean Streets by Piri Thomas. And it's a foundational memoir of a Latino of Puerto Rican and Cuban descent who grew up in Spanish Harlem. Now, this book is older. It was published in 1967. It follows Thomas through the first few decades of his life, a life of poverty in which he joins in fights with street gangs, faces racism, travels, succumbs to addiction, gets involved in crime, is imprisoned, and eventually is released. Now, one of the major themes is identity, specifically Thomas's identity as a dark complexion Puerto Rican. Thomas is seen as black rather than Hispanic or Latino, and even his own family rejects the African aspects of their ancestry, something that we talked about a lot today. This rejection had Thomas contemplating his own racial and ethnic identity for much of his early life. Yeah, last week, uh, Willy Perdomo was in an uh, interview by uh, Urayoan Noel, another Puerto Rican poet and scholar, right? And he was talking like the importance of Down This Mean Street for him as an Afroboricua, right? And, and, and how this book was like central to his understanding of race and his, and, and his standing within, within those dynamics, racial dynamics of the U.S. Yeah, it's, it's I mean... I don't know if we go as far as to say it started at all, but it is definitely that that memoir that really opened up that experience, put it into words. The discursive possibilities of talking about Afro-Latino identity, definitely, that's why it is a, a def uh, still to this day a foundational text. Right? Yeah, and which is why we say, you know, many of you may be familiar with it already, but for those of you who aren't, it is absolutely worth checking out to sort of bring in another angle that's maybe not through poetry that uh, addresses the the Afro-Latino experience. Something to say also about uh, Piri Thomas is that he was a spoken word poet and a, a magnificent one. And uh, if you want to like listen him like uh, uh, perform his poetry, you should check out uh, Every Shell is Born a Poet. It's a record he made with Afro-Latin jazz musicians during the 2000s, right? And it's a fantastic album that could allow you to, to explore and to expand the different uh, takes on, on Afro-Latino identity that Piri Thomas always like exploring his, in his work. So thanks for joining us for this episode. Before we sign off, we want to share some feedback and comments that we got from listeners on our season one episodes. This week, the feedback is related to episode two, in which we discussed Mosquita y Mari. Yeah, Mosquita y Mari is a, is a film by Aurora Guerrero. Yeah, so this is from Brianna. And Brianna says, This movie brought up a conversation about why it is difficult to be queer in the Latinx community. It was so interesting that the root of the homophobia that queer Latinx face was because of a religion that colonizes force on the native in Latin America. I wonder if these Latinx countries were uncolonized, if this homophobia would be the case today. 
I say this because in several Caribbean countries where a very little number of people who still practice their ancestral religion are of the time more accepting of people from the LBGTQ plus community. Take Buddhism, for instance, in Haiti. A lot of queers gravitate towards that as their religion because people in that church are accepting for who and what they are. And the same could be said about uh, Candomblé in Brazil. And and I just think that question, that line of thinking and saying, you know, let's challenge this colonizer's religion and say, where would we be? I mean, we can't get that answer because we can't go back and erase what happened. But even just that questioning of, well, what if we do if we move forward in a direction that's more like that, rather than continuing to embrace the religion of the colonizer? How much more accepting would we be as a community to one another? Yeah, African uh, spiritual views are more accepting of, of, of different expressions of gender and sexualities. And and indigenous Native American um, yeah, groups that, as well. Mm-hmm. Our second email comes from Fabia, and again, about Mosquita y Mari. They write, I listened to Latinas in film Mosquita y Mari, and at the beginning of the podcast, the first thing that caught my attention was the debate about being queer in the Latin community and its hardships. One of the reasons behind the community being queerphobic is because of religious purposes. Queer people are considered sinners in the church. This makes me wonder how difficult it would be for the Latin population to come out. They have to sacrifice for the sake of reputation. Like Shanti, who was quoted in the episode, says, As teens, we go through many phases and experience many emotions, but it changes. The strictness that her parents have with her can affect how she sees things in the long run. And Fabia says, I agree with this statement. I'm not from the Latin community, but even in my culture, certain things aren't accepted. Parents and their strict restrictions are one of the things our cultures have in common. Parents might think they're doing it for their good, but it also doesn't give the individual the chance to speak for themselves or identify themselves how they want to be identified. Um, if you want to uh, explore some more the, the topic of queerness, right, and queer identities and religion, I will recommend also like to check out uh, Radio Ambulante, the podcast the, uh, about stories of Latin American, uh, about La uh, from Latin America. And there's a, a recent episode that precisely look at that topic. And it's, uh, it's, it's a really fantastic episode that looks at how precisely like the different versions of, of the Christian church had, had been so present to uh, queer people. Yeah, great recommendation. Absolutely. So thanks to our listeners for those messages. We really appreciate your comments. And remember, you too can share your thoughts with us on today's episode. You know, are you familiar with any of these poets? Are they new to you? Or what are your thoughts on the themes that we discussed today? Do you have opinions regarding anti-blackness and confronting anti-blackness? Share those thoughts with us. Remember that you can always reach out to us on social media or by email. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at LatinxVisions. Our email address is latinxvisions at gmail.com. Just as we did today, we love to include your thoughts in a future episode. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcast. Share us with friends, family, your community. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on both Apple and Spotify if you have the chance. So thanks again for joining us. Estamos a la escucha. Dale. Until next time.